Just over 25 years ago, in a speech in Louisville, Kentucky, farmer, poet, critic, and theorist Wendell Berry sought to restore love, healing, wholeness, and health to the lexicon of modern American healthcare. It is perhaps less remarkable that he did this than that the words themselves had been lost to healthcare systems at all and replaced with words like efficiency, value, specialization. Words that have more to do with business management than with the tasks of healing and care to which health systems are dedicated. In this speech, called Health is Membership, Barry said, This plainly is a view of health that is severely reductive. It is, to begin with, almost fanatically individualistic. The body is seen as a defective, or potentially defective, machine, singular, solitary, and displaced, without love, solace, or pleasure. Its health excludes unhealthy cigarettes, but does not exclude unhealthy food, water, and air. One may presumably be healthy in a disintegrated family or community or in a destroyed or poisoned ecosystem. Our task in this series is to probe and understand the relevance of Barry's thinking for health, healing, and healthcare 25 years on from this speech. As we face an America that spends increasing sums on healthcare with poorer outcomes, Barry's thinking might just have something to say that can reorient us and help us all flourish. This series is brought to you by Capita. Capita is an ideas lab and platform for fostering new ideas and encouraging informed debate on critical issues that impact children, families, and the common good. Our goal is a future in which all children and families flourish. Find out more at capitasocial.org. Today we talk with Grace Hackney. Grace is an elder in the United Methodist Church and the founding director of Life Around the Table. She tends 12 acres in the Piedmont of North Carolina with her husband and a smattering of animals. Life Around the Table is a ministry that works to strengthen communities and increase their capacity and desire to eat together faithfully. Grace and I spoke at the studios of WUNC in Durham, North Carolina. Grace, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, Introduce yourself, please. Thank you for inviting me, Joe. Uh, My name is Grace Hackney. I am um, a clergywoman in the North Carolina Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, and I am the founding director of Life Around the Table, which is a ministry uh, in which we seek to nourish community around the table. Great. So we are, of course, commemorating... 25 years of Wendell Berry's essay, Health is Membership. Mm -hmm. And before we got started today, you were telling me a little bit about how you started reading Wendell Berry when you went into ministry in a rural community. Yes. Um, I graduated from Duke Divinity School in 2003 and was appointed to serve a small rural church in Cedar Grove, uh, North Carolina. And I had heard about Wendell Berry. I think I had read a poem here and there, but I had not read Wendell Berry. And when I went to this rural church, someone said to me, you need to read Wendell Berry. And I received for Christmas that year a little paperback, The Gift of Land, Mm -hmm. and was totally immersed in it. And then probably a year or so after that, my friend Keith Metter pointed me to health as membership. 
And it was very foundational for me as a new clergy person in a rural community. So at Cedar Grove, you and your community founded Anatoth Community Garden, right? Yes. Shortly after I was there, there was a murder in the community and a poor white man who had a common law marriage with an African-American woman was shot in broad daylight and robbed. And his store was barely two miles from our church. And I had met an African-American man in the community named Valley Taylor. And when this murder happened, he came probably a week afterwards to me and said, we need to do something. Do you think your church could help raise money for a reward? And we sat down and, and chatted, and we came to the conclusion that as Christians, maybe there was a better response than raising money. And so we decided that we would stand on the land where the murder had happened and invite the community to come together to stand up against fear because the community was very afraid and didn't want to come out. So we stood up against fear because that's what we do as Christians. And it was just magical. There was rich and poor, black and white, Latino, and Valley's mother was in the crowd. And I can still see her because there was just sort of this connection between us. And afterwards, she invited me and another person to her home because she had had a vision to give land to someone who would use it for reconciliation. That's the short story. And so after a lot of prayer and communication, the Taylor family leased to Cedar Grove United Methodist Church five acres of land to be used for the healing of the community, seeing that the healing of the community and the healing of black bodies and white bodies, et cetera, was all connected. So you've talked already about healing and wholeness. And of course, these are concepts that are part of health. And I'm curious for you to just react to how, in that case, a community rebuilt health, healing, wholeness, which really Barry calls us to in health mm-hmm. as membership. I would say that we didn't rebuild it, but that we sought to rebuild it because it's such a long-term project. And so it was a new concept to a lot of people to think about the health of the community being the smallest unit of health because there had been so much division. As we worshiped in this small rural church, I understood that Whether the people in this church could name it or not, they knew what membership in a community meant. They had grown up as tobacco farmers, and they helped each other, and everyone knew everybody else's business, and they shared farm equipment, et cetera. But that way of life was starting to pass away. As a matter of fact, when I was there, it was during the tobacco buyout, the government tobacco buyout. And so farmers were not able to farm. And so when this murder happened, we started, I think, expanding what we meant by community and that it wasn't just the people, the white people in the church, 
that was part of this system that took care of each other and helped each other, but that the community also included the land, and it also included the black bodies and the invisible people in the community that had perhaps not been part of that community. I would say, though, that the those communities had their own memberships. So we had different memberships in the community, but they didn't all come together. And so it was a pretty radical vision, as I look back on it, to think that we could begin to move toward a more holistic understanding of what we meant by membership and by community. But we felt very strong, strongly that the spirit was in this and that it wasn't my idea or Zenobia Taylor's idea. It was birthed out of us paying attention to what was happening in the community through a lens of faith and through a lens of understanding the creation as as part of our membership. I think I heard you say that the community is the smallest unit of health. Is that correct? Yeah, the community is the smallest right. unit not of the health. Not the individual. Not the individual. The right, right, right. I thought you were tricking me. No, but... no, no. I was not trying to trick you. I was, <laughs> I was trying to get you to go further down that particular yeah, path yeah. about the community is the smallest unit of health, not Not the individual, absolutely. But that's radical, too. That is very radical. And we live in such an individualized world that, and even in the church, the church itself becomes this individual entity. But that's not what Jesus is about. We are part of the body of Christ as Christians, but that is not isolated from everything else that's around us. There have always been people who resist that and can't understand how that could be. But I love in this essay when he talks about how we talk about tobacco as being detrimental and secondhand smoke, et cetera, but not food. And so just asking questions, and I think that is what I was able to do, is to ask questions. What would it look like if we honored creation? What would it look like if we thought about salvation in a different way, not a disembodied fly to heaven and our bodies don't matter way, but what if we thought about salvation as wholeness right. and as health? Which, of course, also means what if we took seriously the resurrection of the body? Absolutely. What if we took seriously the fact that we are uh, saved mm-hmm. as a community, not just as individuals? Right. And, you know, the 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 passage from John three sixteen that that Barry uses is one that most Christians have grown up memorizing and have interpreted it as a very individualistic. Are you mm-hmm. saved? Right. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so for me as a clergy person, I felt that part of my job in any person's job as a clergy person is to help us be able to see Scripture in a more holistic way, that Scripture is not about our individual selves or even our individual church or even our individual community, but that we're members of this much larger community. And you're right, that's radical, especially when you start thinking about race or about immigration or about uh, any number of 
isms that the church has accommodated to. So let's talk a little bit about eating. And I think I suspect we could talk a lot about eating. Probably. (laughs) But let's talk a little bit about it. As it relates to, uh, in this essay, Health is Membership, he talks about sort of the medical industry and and the, the complexity of that, particularly in hospital systems where food, which we know, and eating, which we know is so constitutive and important for health, is treated so industrially, so to speak. And, you know, you have really been at the forefront in helping people in the church, particularly here in North Carolina, think differently, not just about food, but about eating. Mm -hmm. Can you share more about that? Sure. So the question that God put on my heart that I wrestled with for quite a while was, what does the way we eat and invite others to eat say about who we think God is? And I found that to be a very damning question. Churches are known for their potlucks, and they're known for their, in North Carolina especially, their, their barbecue, which is wonderful. And so on one hand, the church has this gift of knowing how to eat together. But on the other hand, that eating is thinking only about the idea that Wendell Berry talks about with the mechanics of eating. Often it's just fuel. And so what if we really started having some serious conversations about what it meant to eat with God's intention for all creation? And it's a very complex topic. It's not an easy conversation. As a matter of fact, I say that the work that we're doing is really dangerous if it gets in the wrong hands. The nonprofit that that I'm founded and am the director of is called Life Around the Table. And one of the things that we do as part of that ministry is we invite people to be trained how to have those kind of conversations in their particular context and to do that around a table. We have organized these conversations by food that laughs, so food that is local, affordable, uncomplicated, good, healthy, and seasonal. But we don't leave it there. Because I am a pastor and a theologian, as Christians, we look at those phrases from a theological perspective. We can't help but do that if we are immersed and if we recognize our baptisms. And so local is incarnation. Affordable has to do with God's economy of grace. Uncomplicated, and food is very complicated, but let's think about food as uncomplicated and as being where the ordinary becomes holy. Food becomes sacramental. And then good is not just how something tastes, what might taste good to you, might not taste good to me, but good is a matter of justice. What were the steps that brought this food to our table? How do we think about black bodies and brown bodies and the ways that this country and our churches have been built on their backs and is being built on their backs? 
So you can see there's some really hard conversations. Health, when we think about food that's healthy, instead of thinking about the absence of disease, we want to think about what it means for community to flourish. And that's obviously where a lot of Wendell Berry's work comes in. And then seasonal, we think about the liturgy of the church and the, the ordered world that God has created and invited us to be part of. And so with seasonal, we learn things like showing restraint, which most of us are not very good at. We're used to eating whatever we want whenever we want it. And so when you start talking about health and membership and health care, it makes tremendous amount of sense that there should be a different way that we think about feeding each other and inviting each other to the table. So how do we invite into this conversation how do we invite healthcare into this conversation? I, I mean, think, we, we're sitting in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah. There's, a, there's a huge hospital there here, actually huge, several of them. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that there are very concrete implications for how you would potentially construct hospitals in the future, but more maybe granularly related to eating and food, how you would think about the food that is provided in that context. Right. Maybe I can give you an example. Please. So Kanita Family Ministries, Reverend Richard Joyner is a, is a friend of mine. And one of the things that they're doing in this very poor part of North Carolina is... And he's in Edgecombe County, He's right? in Edgecombe right. County. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they're doing is youth are growing food that is then sold to the local hospital. And so the, the hospital now has a relationship with the community that it didn't have before. And in the same way, youth are learning, again, what it means to put their hands in the soil and to grow something and are, are able to provide some economic stability in that community. It's a long, slow process. I think that more of those kind of things could happen. I think sometimes... The bureaucracy in a large institution or a large hospital might make it harder, but starting even at a smaller scale in some of these small hospitals, county hospitals, is bearing witness to the fact that it could happen. I think it's a long, slow patience in that direction, but I I think we have to be moving there. Now, one thing that I'm troubled by, and you've you've referenced it a little bit in our conversation today, is the treatment of black and brown bodies in agriculture historically in a place like North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you would suggest as a clergy person who is committed to reconciliation, how you would suggest we wrestle with Mm -hmm. the legacy of agriculture, Mm. and a lot of what we're talking about today requires a recovery of agriculture Mm -hmm. with the history of exploitation, particularly of black labor and increasingly today brown labor in the provision of, of, of food out of the ground, out of the soil of North Carolina? That's a huge question. First of all, let me say that I think our 
churches have failed in that respect, have failed to give attention to that. And that one of the first things we have to be able to do is we have to be able to befriend one another. And when we start to understand who we are as people created by God and God's likeness and image, we can't put dividing lines. And so one of the things that I've really worked hard at, and it's not easy, is putting myself in places that might be uncomfortable for me, but befriending black farmers and listening. There's a great amount of work that has to be done along the lines of repentance. And there's conversations about reparations and whose land is this in the first place. Going back to again to some of my friends who are African-American, we need to be able to understand as white people that this was not just something that happened accidentally, <laughs> right? And that we, we are part of it. We're complicit. So as far as practical things, buying your food from a black farmer, putting yourself in those places, not presuming you know everything, getting away from food elitism, inviting people to the table to share food together. And one of the things we do in our Eating Together Faithfully conversations is to have some of those conversations. And they've been hard. The first training that we did, we worked very hard to have a very diverse group of people in that group that were being trained. And we failed miserably. And so acknowledging the fact that we still have a long way to go. I'm not certain I can really answer that question. Well, I mean, it's just helpful, right, yeah. to, that we at least are asking that we question. We have to ask those and... questions, and we need to read, and we need to... The word that comes to mind is humility. I realize when, in 2004 we entered into this relationship with the Taylor family and the land that they offered to us. I think at the time I had no grasp on what significance there was in an African-American family leasing or giving, practically, land to a white church. I did not understand the risk that Zenobia Taylor was taking why would she want to trust us, knowing the history? And yet, she did. And so, continuing to, to learn from each other and to work on those friendships and those relationships and listen to one another, uh, I think it's just critical. Capita is an ideas lab and platform for fostering new ideas and encouraging informed debate on critical issues that impact children, families, and the common good. Our goal is a future in which all children and families flourish. Find out more at capitasocial.org.
at Capita, we're very interested in the formation of children and the context, the family context in which children are formed and educated. And I think we talk very little about how they're formed with regards to their broader community, food, and eating. And on the broader community piece, I want to just highlight, right, that we we encourage our children to not talk to strangers. Right. 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 Which seems to me very counter to the posture of empathy and openness that most people say they want their children to be raised with. And so with all of your experience going back to Anatoth and before, how would you suggest we think about the experience of childhood as it relates to community eating and food? What a wonderful question. I was one of the lucky ones, as Wendell Berry says, who grew up in this unconsciousness of community. It was just there. And it wasn't until, really, I was well into adulthood that I realized what a gift that was. And so I think, speaking as a clergy person, I think the task of the church is to nourish children in a very different way than we're used to. And so what would it look like if our preschools were centered around community gardens? What would it look like if our Sunday school classes were not felt bored or I know we're getting away from that, but what if what if that was different? What if our children were not ushered out of worship but were seen as valuable members of the body? What if children participated in the growing and preparing of food for a meal. Again, what I'm suggesting is this radical metanoia, this radical repentance, this radical thinking of how we go about church. And also what that church's place is in a particular community, that it doesn't stand above but that it's a member of. And as we move forward, I think there's tremendous potential for us to reimagine this membership. One of the things that I have said is that when we exclude children from our conversations or from our decision-making, our growing of food, etc., we're losing a valuable member of our community. Children are members of our community too. And I think perhaps we have a lot to learn from children. It's not just us doing the teaching. It's them being open to children teaching us. Absolutely. And also learning with children in the garden or in the kitchen that we learn from the seeds that we planted. And so we're learning alongside each other. From each other, yes, but also alongside each other, we're learning from the land or from the asparagus or from the potato, which is, I think, life as life was intended to be. But it's very radical. You know, you, you, that's a great point. And I'm, 
I think about that a lot, right? That that what somebody like Wendell Berry is is calling us to is life as it was meant to be. And I think a lot of people hear that as a call to return to mm-hmm. something. And yet that's just not practical. No. And so what does the future hold as far as this goes, right? What is your hope yeah. for the future? It's not a nostalgic uh, dream. It's a living into the kingdom. And again, it's a long, slow, patient movement. I think, perhaps, Joe, that we're in a particular climate right now, and I use that word very broadly, that is begging for a different way. And as we move into the future, we're already beginning to see some seeds that are sprouting. We're seeing young people that are wanting to go into agriculture. What would it look like if, for example, church-owned property was made available to young farmers? What would it look like if church kitchens that aren't really being used that much were starting to teach children how to cook with their families? And so the potential of expanding our tables into the world is huge, but it requires humility. It requires a rethinking of how we do it, and it requires us not to feel shamed when we don't get it all right. (laughs) So there has to be a, a tremendous amount of grace and of non-judgment, and of welcoming, and of mutual conversation with you, one another. You are a clergy person, but you're not currently pastoring a church, as I understand it. And you, before this conversation began, you were telling me about how, in some ways, we need to rethink church. And this this strikes me as particularly important when increasingly millennials and and folks who are younger are not participating not just in churches but in sort of any any sort of organized religion and even more broadly civic associations they're not joining the Kiwanis club or the rotary club in the way that they used to and so i'm just curious your thoughts on how we do that rethinking what are some other third spaces between work and home that need to be built and that could be built around tables to facilitate and foster the connections which are the context in which we flourish. We're already starting to see a lot of that happen. Uh, One of the things that we do with our Eating Together Faithfully conversations is those conversations happen around a table. So a group of 10 to 12 people come together and share a meal and have conversations that are deeply relevant and theological. And in some ways, it's worship. We don't call it that, but it's a worshipful space. 
And we're starting to see this dinner church movement. And with any kind of movement like that, you can do it well or you cannot do it well. Farm churches, churches that are actually worshiping around the farm as the central place. I think we have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater and to remain true to our liturgy and to the sacramental nature of our faith and to broaden our understanding of our lives as all being a miracle and not just one compartmentalized part. House churches or even large churches that decide they're going to put their front lawn in food and anybody in the community can come and have some of that. I think the possibilities are endless. I think you're also probably suggesting that the table can become the basis for interfaith conversation. Absolutely. I've been part of a conversation called Faithlands, which is an interfaith conversation around using faith-owned land to provide young farmers space to grow food and grow community. And we all have in common the fact that we eat. And we all have in common that the understanding that creation is a gift and that we are members of that and that we have a responsibility to it. That when we care for each other and all creation, that we will be cared for. And so it's a common theme throughout all the major religious traditions. And one of the beauties of being part of this interfaith conversation is that we we begin to see our commonality as being very deep and rich and way stronger than any differences we might have. And so sitting down to share a table with my Muslim friends or my Jewish friends is something I wish everyone could have the opportunity to do. Your work at Anatoth and Cedar Grove began as a result of a death. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, that that I think about when I read Wendell Berry's Health is Membership is that in the second decade of the 21st century here in the United States, we don't deal particularly well with death and dying. So I'm just wondering what guidance you think this essay and Wendell Berry's work and your experiences around tables and in churches might teach us about facing death and dying well in the context of a community. As a Christian, we believe in resurrection. And we can't believe in resurrection unless we also understand that we're going to die. And that causes us to think about how we're going to live our lives in a very different way. On a practical way of thinking about it, when we are so far removed from an agrarian way of living, we are also distanced from 
death. And my experiences in rural communities has shown me that people that have killed a chicken and had it for dinner have a much stronger understanding of what it means to die than someone who doesn't have that experience. And so as we begin to start thinking about reimagining our lives together in a more agrarian kind of membership, then I've, I've wondered if we also start understanding more clearly the fact that we're creatures who will die and that our life has depended on creatures who die, whether it be food or, or meat, that we're dependent on that. And so it turns a, a light bulb on in our mind. An example, one of the things we also do is we do uh, retreats for clergy, Sabbath retreats for clergy who come and put their hands in the dirt for two hours and eat this beautiful food and share in the Eucharist for two hours and then rest in silence for two hours. And one of our cohorts early on, one of our older hens, who I knew was nearing the end of her life, died in my arms. And the conversations that the clergy had after that death of this creature in my arms was so remarkable. And the number of clergy who said they went back to their congregations with a deeper understanding of what it means that we'll all die. And wouldn't it be something if our communities were so strong that we were actually cradled in the arms of a community member as we die? The medical industrial complex Mm. really wants to manage death and manage sickness. And it really is bringing the sort of concepts of scientific management, business management, into something which really, frankly, cannot be managed. We are all going to die. And it seems to me that management, right, and we sort of live in a managerial context, is really opposed to the natural rhythms, the natural order that farmers are connected to. I think you talk to a farmer, they recognize the limits right. of what they can they can manage. Just reflect with me on that, if you would, for a minute, because I think what we're really challenged by is sort of paradigms of economy and politics that run very counter to the natural order of things as they're experienced in a place like a farm. Yes, we are. Joe, I wonder if as uh, leaders in faith traditions, we don't also have a responsibility to help people know that they have choices and that in the same way that God called Jeremiah to plant gardens and to eat what they produce and to seek the 
welfare or the wholeness of the community in which they had been sent. If we could begin to see ourselves as people who are seeking the welfare of the place where we've been sent, even as we accompany one another in our death. And does that mean that we're not going to go to the doctor or that we're not going to have the heart bypass surgery? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it means is that we advocate and that we model different kinds of ways that we can think about health and about dying. And that as leaders in the church, we allow people to know that they can ask questions and that they can say no, because we don't put our full trust in a man-made hospital or regime or machine. Our trust is elsewhere. Our trust is in God. And so when we're able to befriend death, I think perhaps it might change how we think about our interaction with the medical system. What is one project you've dreamed about but haven't started yet? Oh my gosh. The work that we're doing now is centered primarily around adults. I would love to do more work in the area of children and families. And it's something that we we have on our mindset. But the other thing that I have dreamed about wanting to do is to do nothing, to just be, to just be a place and be part of that community where people know who we are, can come to our farm. If they need to drop in and have dinner, they can do that. If they need a night away, they can do that. If, if I'm having trouble, I can feel free to say, it's not a good day for me and there's not gonna be any hurt feelings. That project of life, just living life as I think it was intended to be lived is, is I think perhaps all of our dreams, whether we want to admit it or not. Reverend Grace Hackney, United Methodist clergy person and executive director, founder of Life Around the Table. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been fun. This podcast has been produced by me, Joe Waters, and Brandon Hinman. Sound and music by Ryan Peoples. Special thanks to Matthew Finn of Cognitive Design, who first suggested the idea of a podcast to commemorate 25 years of Wendell Berry's Health is Membership. 